0: I invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2, Hebrews chapter 2. If you're using one of the Bibles that's provided for you here, you should find it on page, on page 1001, 1001. as I mentioned earlier, we're going to be considering this passage from Hebrews chapter 2 in connection to the Heidelberg Catechism and its exposition of the Lord's Prayer, at least that request, when we say, your kingdom come. And here in Hebrews chapter 2, it's a very rich chapter. There's a lot here to discuss. But in many ways, what we have and find here is the path that Jesus Christ himself took uh, to the throne. Uh, That is, Jesus Christ himself was established as the king at God's right hand in heaven. And so it provides us uh, with a helpful uh, glimpse into the nature of the kingdom of God and what it then means when we pray, your kingdom comes. So Hebrews chapter 2, we'll read verses 5 through 18. This is the holy and inspired word of God. Verse 5. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So far from God's holy word. I ask you to now take uh, the hymnal we sang from and turn to the back, to the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 48. Lord's Day 48 on page 895. There's one question there. I'll read the question and we'll respond together with the answer. So question 123. What does the second petition of the Lord's Prayer mean? Your kingdom come means... Rule us by your word and spirit in such a way that more and more we submit to you. Preserve and increase your church. Destroy the devil's work. Destroy every force which revolts against you and every conspiracy against your holy word. Do all this until your kingdom fully comes when you will be all in all. So far from the catechism. Dear Congregation of Our Lord Jesus Christ, one of the great recoveries of the Protestant Reformation was uh, the spirituality of the church, right? Throughout the early church and even throughout the the Middle Ages, uh, the church and the state were often very much confused. Uh, But here, during the time of the Protestant Reformation, the nature of the church, the spirituality of the church uh, came uh, to the forefront, and in many ways, we see this reflected in the Heidelberg Catechism's answer when it, uh, it exposits what it means that to pray, your kingdom comes. Um, you'll notice that this prayer, as it's, un, uh, it's opened up for us, uh, deals first and foremost with our own hearts, us, right? Rule us by your word and spirit. Um, it deals with the word of God having free course in this world, right? Destroy every conspiracy against your word. And it has to do with the church, right? Preserve and increase your church, right? So the people of God, our own hearts being ruled by Christ, um, the Word of God being able to have free course to go out throughout this world, that through that Word and the work of the Holy Spirit, people might be brought into the church, and that the church itself might be preserved, and increased throughout this world. And here in this answer we see reflected for us the spirituality of the church, what we are to be striving for, what we are to be desirous of in this world. And so before coming specifically to the catechism, um, I want us to first open up Hebrews chapter 2 just a little bit that we might first understand uh, the spiritual and heavenly nature of the kingdom of God. Right Throughout Matthew's gospel, for example, um, we hear this phrase, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven. And there we are told and taught that the kingdom of God is one that has heavenly origins and a heavenly source of power. It advances not by earthly means, but by heavenly means. It's God fighting on behalf of his people from heaven. And here in Hebrews chapter 2, we see the king of the kingdom of heaven entering that place Um, uh, sitting upon his throne at the right hand of God the Father. And so first you want to jump into uh, Hebrews chapter 2 to think about uh, the nature of the king and the kingdom that we are praying would come in this world. So notice if you look with me to Hebrews chapter 2, if you keep your Bible open there, it would be helpful for us. But here in Hebrews chapter 2, the author begins uh, by citing for us Psalm 8. And there he says in verse 6, quoting Psalm 8, What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet, right? So Psalm 8 was looking forward to the son of David who would fulfill the purpose and destiny of mankind, That as God had created man, right, to have dominion and to rule over his creation, man, however, subjected himself to that creation, right, listening to the voice of the serpent. But Jesus Christ, as as Hebrews 2 opens up for us, is the one who comes as the one who would restore man to his position, in which he would rule over all things, putting everything in subjection under his feet. He says that Jesus Christ has come to fulfill that. The question, though, is how does Jesus Christ uh, bring that about? How does Jesus Christ become one who is now uh, in in control over all things and has all things in subjection under his feet? And Hebrews 2 reminds us that Jesus Christ's path to, to the throne, his path to the kingship, was not one of military might or earthly strength, but it was one of suffering. It was one of cross-bearing, ultimately. And therefore, Jesus Christ, by bearing his cross, and Jesus Christ, through enduring the pain and the suffering, has received a kingdom. It's the same picture we see in the Old Testament, the way in which David received the kingdom of Israel, right? Saul was on the throne, and David had been anointed by the Lord, one after his own heart, to receive the kingdom. And how does the Lord transfer the kingdom from Saul to David? David doesn't create a powerful army to now uh, come against and have a coup against uh, King Saul, right? But rather, King David is hunted to the point where he's even basically exiled from the land. David, reflecting upon that exile, speaks of it as a kind of death. That he by leaving the land, he kind of entered into the grave, and by. And through that, the Lord would eventually bring David back to the throne as a kind of resurrection. It was through suffering, it was through trial, that David himself received the kingdom. And so we see that with Christ himself. That through his cross and through his suffering, Jesus Christ has been given a name that is above every name. That through the cross of Jesus Christ, he has now been crowned with glory and honor when we pray your kingdom comes, we're praying uh, for the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom that belongs to King Jesus to come. And we must then recognize and expect that the kingdom of Christ will advance in the same way that Christ established his kingdom. The kingdom of Christ advances not through earthly means, not through human strength and human might and human power, not necessarily through politics or economics, the kingdom of Christ advances through his people enduring, through his people bearing their cross as the kingdom advances. And so when we pray your kingdom comes, we're recognizing that the kingdom comes in a paradoxical way, in a way that confuses the world. Again, the world expects a kingdom with all of its glory, all of its um, pomp, all of its splendor, right, to come in a noticeable way, in a way that they can see and perceive. But the kingdom of Christ comes in a way that is not perceived by physical eyes, by the world and earthly means. This is the point of Hebrews 2. If you look down at verse, uh, the end of verse 8, it says, "Now in putting everything in subjection to Him, He left nothing outside His control." Right. So the kingship that Christ has received is one that is over all things. Right. He is Lord of heaven and earth. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to Him. Right. That's what the point here. But notice what it goes on, on to say, at present, right? Right now, from our perspective here, at present. We do not yet see everything in subjection to him. It's not a matter, right? Where we can confess, and we do confess, that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is King. But we do not yet see it, everything in subjection to him. But what do we see? Verse 9, but we see him. Now, it's a very confusing thing if you think about it. We don't see this, but we see that. We don't see everything in subjection to Jesus, but we do see Jesus. What is the author talking about here? In what sense do we not see everything in subjection to Jesus, yet how do we see Jesus? I think part of the answer comes later in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. You can turn there or just simply listen. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Right? So the author's point here is that we as the people of God do not see everything in subjection to Christ. Right? We, we, we see rebellion. We often see the world prospering in its rebellion against the Lord and the Christ's ways. We feel that very uh, tangibly here in New York City. Right? It's something that we do not see, yet we are convicted of it By the eyes of faith. By faith, we see Jesus. And throughout Hebrews, uh, this whole letter, and especially chapter 11, faith is is, is sort of um, a way by which we can see, an organ of apprehension, something by which we see what is otherwise unseen. God's word becomes the lens, it becomes the tower from which we look out and see heavenly realities. Through the word of God, Right as we look through this word, we see... Jesus Christ, crowned with glory and honor. We see not the, the, the powers of this world, the kings and the, uh, those in high position of this world as ultimate or the greatest, but we see, by faith, Jesus Christ at the right hand of the Father in heaven. We see that Jesus Christ is truly the king. Jesus Christ is truly the one crowned with glory and honor, the one to whom we owe all of ourselves, our whole allegiance Again, this is not something we see with our physical eyes, but something we see by faith. Faith is the conviction of things not seen. And so by faith, then we see, have our eyes fixed upon Jesus and then look to him for his kingdom to come and to advance. And so by eyes of faith lifted to Jesus in heaven, When we pray for your kingdom to come, we then need to recognize that the kingdom will come, again, not merely through earthly means, but from heavenly power. We see this throughout the scriptures. We don't have time to look at all of them, but think of the dream that Nebuchadnezzar has in the Old Testament. I know some of the children here may be familiar with that dream, right? Nebuchadnezzar sees this great statue with the various parts to it of these kingdoms of the world and of the earth. But then this stone cut out by no human hand comes flying down to crush this uh, statue. And this stone grows into a great mountain that covers the whole earth. Right. The whole point is to say that that stone that grows as a great kingdom is one that comes from heaven. It's God Himself who sends that stone. The strength of it comes from Him. Or think of Joshua as he's battling um, uh, these great armies um, in the south in the Old Testament, right? And, and as he's fighting against them, he prays for the sun to stand still. But also, as he's fighting against them, uh, the Lord fights on his behalf, on his behalf of Israel, flinging stones from heaven down uh, to crush the armies that opposed him. Right Again, all throughout the Old Testament, we see God fighting for his people from heaven. The way in which the kingdom advances is not through earthly means, uh, but through heavenly means. And so this is just a very brief look at uh, Hebrews uh, chapter 2 and to think about the spirituality of the church and the nature of the kingdom and get us to think, again, what are we asking for when we ask for God's kingdom to come? And so with that being said, we're going to turn now just to think of kind of some application uh, from uh, the Heidelberg Catechism in the same vein here. So uh, Lord's Day 48 right, as it opens up the, the uh, petition, your kingdom comes, gives us uh, three petitions, uh, three main areas that our prayer, your kingdom come, is to reflect upon. First, it says that when we pray your kingdom come, it means that we are to pray, Father, rule us by your word and spirit in such a way that more and more we submit to you, right? So first and foremost, when we think about your kingdom come, it's not a matter of just looking outward, and of saying, okay, Lord, destroy everything and destroy the works of the devil, destroy everything that opposes you. But first and foremost, when we pray your kingdom come, we need to recognize that the kingdom must come in my own heart first. The kingdom must come as God rules me by his word and spirit. Keeping those two things together has been very important, right? Not just by your word in a kind of rationalistic sense. And not just by the Spirit in a sort of mystical sense, but this Word and the Spirit together ruling us. And so when you pray, do you often pray for this? I think we often do, maybe not in these exact words, right? We often will pray, Father, you know, subdue this sin in me that I'm wrestling with. Um, Father, I hate that, that this continues to linger in me. Uh, Father, I, I, I don't desire to walk in these ways anymore. Deliver me from them, right? All of those prayers is that prayer, Father, rule us by your word and spirit, that more and more I submit to you. And so this is the heartfelt prayer of God's people, the sincere desire that, that we would truly live as citizens of the kingdom of heaven and that the way of life of that kingdom would more and more penetrate into my life and my life would reflect that more and more. Uh, in this world. And it reminds us then that the way of sanctification, the way of growing and submitting to God's ways, again, is not something of human effort, merely. But right, because we're praying, because we're asking God to do this, we know that it's a supernatural work of God. He must do it. We saw this a few weeks ago from Galatians, remember? The fruit of the Spirit. It's the fruit of the new creation. It's the fruit that is not something that is generated from my own strength, but something that God works in me and produces in me. And so when I pray, Father, rule me, rule us, rule your church by your word and spirit, I am recognizing that this is the work of God. And if I am to overcome sin, if I am to overcome things that are clinging to me and weighing me down to throw them off, I must come before God and ask for him uh, to do it. It's not a matter of my own effort, but praying that God would do this. And again, not only just for myself, right? We can often become so focused on ourselves, our own sins, uh, but also for the church, right? Rule us by your word and spirit. Father, may may, uh, as a body... May may, may we reflect more and more the fact that King Jesus rules over us. That should be our desire, not just individually, but also corporately, that we would together look like the people of God. The church is the the people that belong to the kingdom. We are citizens of heaven. And so the first request, uh, rule us by your word and spirit. The second is Preserve, according to the Catechism, preserve and increase your church. Again, we're focusing on when it says your kingdom comes. There is the spirituality of the church, and part of this request then is that the church, the body of Christ, would be preserved. Right, we're in the midst of a world of enemies, midst of a world, the world, the flesh, the devil. Right, our arch enemies that would seek to destroy the church. At times, the church has been uh, brought down to a very lowly place, almost extinguished entirely, very few left. Think of Elijah's day, right, where there's only 7,000 remaining faithful to the Lord. Right? There, there are times as, as it ebbs and flows throughout history until Christ comes again, the church grows it and also shrinks at times. It's oppressed. It's, it's, it's hunted down. And so we pray that God would continue to preserve his church. And we do so with the hope and the assurance that God will. The gates of hell will not prevail. The church will continue. Christ is an eternal king. He cannot be without a people. And so though the church may at times become so small, we know that God will continue to keep us. But we have to pray. Preserve your church, but also increase your church. Right? Increase your church. Part of our right Prayer reflects our own desires. Prayer reflects what we seek the Lord to do. And our desire should be that all of those whom Christ has died for, all of God's people spread throughout our city, uh, throughout the world, that they would come and be brought in by the preaching of the word, that God would gather his people. And so we're praying that the church would be preserved, but also the church would increase. As God gathers his people out of darkness into light, bringing them, transferring them into the kingdom of his beloved Son. Right? That's again our, our desire. It's a desire that, that says that it's not just a matter of myself and, 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 and looking to my own needs, but desiring that the fullness of Christ's body would come, that all would be brought in. in many ways, this prayer is inspired from that vision of revelation, right? Where, where we see the throne of the Lamb and we see a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation gathered around that throne. Right? Our longing for that day should then inspire this prayer in us. Increase your church, Lord. I long for this day when the fullness of my brothers and sisters, the family of God, are gathered at the throne of the Lamb, offering up eternal praise to Him. That moves us then, Right? to then desire, Lord, increase your church, not just because we need numbers, not just because we desire to look more impressive to the eyes of of the world, um, that we might look uh, and and have more influence, right? The ultimate desire is worship. The ultimate desire is that the name of Christ would be honored and glorified. And that's where this prayer comes from. Your kingdom come, preserve and increase your church. And the third request then, according to the catechism, Destroy the devil's work. And it fleshes it out further, right? What is the devil's work? Well, destroy every force which revolts against you and every conspiracy against your holy word. Now, remember Paul's words to the Ephesians, right? We wrestle not against flesh and blood, right? The war in which we find ourselves is a spiritual war, which is why the catechism focuses on the devil's work, right? Right? Highlighting the fact that what we are desiring to be destroyed as it manifests itself in this world are the devil's works. That which um, is inspired from hell itself. We we, we desire that those works uh, be destroyed. And and the kind of the climax of all of that is that we ultimately desire that the Word of God would have free course. Again, it's not just a matter of Lord, destroy the works so that I might be comfortable here. Destroy the works of the devil so that I might not have to wrestle and fight against things. That's not really where this prayer is coming from. This prayer is coming from a desire that God's word would be able to have free course in this world. Not that we would just be comfortable. Not that just we would have a society of Christians. And that we would have to have no opposition. Everybody just thinks the same. Right? The ultimate desire here is for God's word to have free reign. What Paul prayed for throughout his prison epistles, right? You can read Philippians, Ephesians, right? He desires that the word would be able to go out. And even if Paul himself was in bondage, right, he rejoiced that the word of God itself was not contained. Again, this is part of our desire as well. And so, as I said earlier, these three requests reflect the nature of the kingdom as we see in Hebrews chapter 2. They're spiritual desires of God's people. In the church, um, we then recognize that we are the people of, of that kingdom. As a spiritual people, we pray for these things, to be ruled by God's word, for his church to be preserved and increased, and for the word to have free course in this world. And finally, just to come to a conclusion here, it gives a sort of time frame for this as well, right? The catechism. Do this until your kingdom fully comes, when you will be all in all. Now, this phrase itself needs to be fleshed out, and there's a lot that could be uh, ways in which we can understand it. Uh, But ultimately, when does the kingdom fully come? The kingdom fully comes when Christ himself returns, the coming king, and he brings the fullness of his kingdom with him. This, This is the day, again, that we are longing for and looking for. The language when you will be all in all reflects part of what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15 and elsewhere. It's when every uh, conspiracy against God's word will be destroyed. When the people of God themselves, we ourselves, will be fully submitted to the word of God. That no rebellion in our hearts will ever uh, remain or ever rise up again. And this is the day, until that day, we are to pray for God's kingdom to come as we desire the glory of Christ, and as his people, a spiritual people, uh, we then are longing uh, for this day uh, more and more. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we ask that your kingdom would come. We ask that you would rule us by your word and spirit in such a way that more and more we submit to you. We ask that you would preserve and increase your church, and we also ask that you would destroy the devil's work Destroy every force which revolts against you and every conspiracy against your holy word. And finally, Lord, we ask that you would do all of this until your kingdom fully comes, when you will be all in all. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.